All right, let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1. Uh, the title of the message that uh, Jordan gave me is Hoping Completely in Future Grace, which is right there in the verse that Jordan gave me as well. So uh, it's a joy to be here. And as I told Jordan, um, you know, figuring out where do I know you from? Well, you coached my son in basketball or whatever. I've, you know, some, you worked with my brother-in-law. I mean, it's just over and over again, and it's been a joy to, to see you all and to worship with you. And uh, let's read this from 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Hear the word of God. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the word of our Lord. Now here's a bad combo. Uh, a man that can't multitask. A toddler that's never heard of caution. And a water park. So a few months ago we were visiting family in Nashville for a couple days and we decided... Uh, I was told that we were going to a water park, and uh, we decided to go there, and then so did everyone else, apparently. And so, now my wife is the more fun of the adults in our household, so she took the two bigger kids to grab the tubes and go down the slides and all that business, and, and my task and my assignment, not a small assignment, was to watch the little one, the one that a clever church member affectionately nicknamed Bam Bam because he is a sprinting, smiling wrecking ball. And so I was to watch him. Now, uh, before you worry, no one gets hurt in this story. Now, the reason no one got hurt was because my eyes did nothing else for two hours than watch him. Just focused upon him. Because in this place, everywhere there wasn't a person, there was water. And everywhere there wasn't water, there was a person. I mean, that's the scene. <laughs> and, you know, some kids in those kind of settings will sort of hold on to daddy's legs. You know, some kids will do that. Not this one. You know, I was telling somebody just a minute ago that his zero to 15 feet is sub five seconds. So you, I mean, you look elsewhere, go, he's gone. So anyways, that's him. Now, before I'm accused of helicoptering, uh, you know, there are places where I... You know, I don't have to look at them, watch them like that. In the backyard, at church, at a place like this, I may be less likely to even have to watch them. But at the water park with every resident of East Nashville, I, I can't just pay attention here and there. Nothing else matters. I have to lock in. Now, often we, we keep an eye on something. We, we focus on something based on the value we place upon that thing. And if it's valuable to us, maybe considered better to us, our senses might be heightened. We pay attention. We focus. So the verse we read uh, just a moment ago, 1 Peter 1.13, it's about hope, yes. But it's not about some sort of laissez-faire, we'll see what happens kind of hope. It's about a disciplined, focused fixated hope. 
So as we approach this verse, these truths, we might ask our affections, uh, what does my distraction say about me? Note first, uh, the command. And the command is to fix your hope completely. Now, maybe you say, well, you're preaching one verse and you just skipped half of it. Okay? Uh, well, we'll be back to that, I promise. But there are three verbs in this verse. But the only command of those three verbs is to hope. It's the only command in this verse. And to be more clear, the, the command is to uh, fix your hope completely. So he qualifies it in some way, to fix your hope completely. Now, why couldn't Peter just say hope? Why didn't he, why couldn't he just say, why didn't he, excuse me, why did he need to say we should fix our hope completely? Well, because uh, he knows that we love to transfer some aspects of our hope, don't we? I've been studying Ecclesiastes, preparing for uh, something, and, and I was reading the book, this book, I commend it to you. It's called Living Life Backward, uh, how the book of Ecclesiastes teaches us to live in light of the end. In the book of Ecclesiastes, if you know it, it talks a lot about vanity. And one of the ways to, um, one of the keys to interpreting the book is to decide what you mean. <laughs> I'm, I'm being attacked um, by a horsefly, it looks like. I grew up around horses, so we, we know each other. Um, but a hinge... <laughs> In the book of Ecclesiastes is how you interpret the word vanity. I mean, does it mean meaninglessness? Everything is meaningless? Well, this book, Jonathan Gibson, he says, instead he takes it as everything is a, a puff of wind, a, a mist, a vapor. His illustration, it's like you light a candle, and when you blow out the candle, you, you try and grab the smoke. Um... So, you know, in life, often uh, we're, we're grabbing things. We're, we're trying to hold on to them. And as we try and hold on to them and grab them, what are they? They're elusive. We, we, we can't hold on. We, we think we're controlling this or that. We've controlled things our whole life. I got a test. I'll study. I'll make the grade. I'll set a goal. I'll do it. I need to be at work in 15 minutes. I'll leave with 16 minutes to go. We control, we control, we control, and then we think we control all kinds of things, and things fall apart. Control's a mirage. We, or we pour our lives into something, maybe for a decade, and it fails. We work towards something. It doesn't turn out like we wanted it to. Or another way, we sort of grab at things. We, we keep pretending that if, I, uh, if we do this or if I get that finally or my kids are this age finally, well, maybe we'll be happy. Uh, house, job, relationship, and all of it is a chasing after the wind. We're grabbing that smoke and we miss. He didn't miss. I think he got it. And so we, we grab and, and we miss. And then what happens? We're disappointed. You're like, this guy's a bundle of joy. We're disappointed in part. What's happened? We've transferred some aspect of our hope. And then we're disappointed. We're asking more of this or that thing than what is promised. It wasn't intended to fully satisfy us. 
Now listen, here's the point. People that do that, and I hope I'm not alone. I don't think I am. People that do that need to be commanded, fix your hope completely on something. And so have you transferred your hope? Now, why don't all those things satisfy us? Well, Peter's already told us. He'd made, he's made plain in this letter that we are exiles. He didn't bury the lead. In chapter 1, verse 1, he says, to those who are elect exiles. That's what you are. Chosen strangers. And then in 117, in case we've forgotten, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you, how? What? As sojourners and exiles. That's what we are. And chapter 1, verse 1 makes plain that we've been exiled on purpose, that the Trinity has actually done this. According to the, hold on. <laughs> For real, that horsefly is on my back, biting me as I, uh, as I speak, which that's, I'm, I'm good, but I'm just, I was checking to make sure it was there. And uh, so, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I, well, here's what happened. I was like, am I imagining that? No, seriously, look at my back. There's blood on my shirt right there. Yeah. Hey, get it. Thank you. <laughs> okay, all right. Here we go. <laughs> that is good. All right. Yeah. I was speaking and I was like, okay. Am I a mat? What is happening? Is it really there? Something is doing something back there. And so I was like, okay, Matt, take a look. And sure enough, there's blood. Okay, all right, here we go. Wow. All right. <laughs> no, 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 no. I grew up with horses. This is not, this is not new to me. All right. <laughs> all right, so where was I? 1-1 one, one makes plain that we are, uh, we've been exiled on purpose. <laughs> Uh, by the Trinity, okay, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. What's the point? This is not home. We're not home uh, yet. This is exile. These things don't last. Grass withers. Flower falls. Friends ghost you. Church members abandon you. Things don't last. We grab. It's exile. Now, in this exile, when, when, we, when, we can't, when we can't hope in things seen, we love something that is not seen. Right? That's 1-8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And all that to say, if you love something that you don't yet see, if you believe there's something that won't perish, that's getting at the idea of hope. You're getting there. So what is hope? Now, we use the word hope as wishful thinking, right? I hope the ice cream machine works at McDonald's on the way home. It will not work at McDonald's on the way home. Okay? <laughs> that's not New Testament hope. <laughs> In the New Testament, the word for hope is never used to describe something uncertain, nor is it used to describe something vague or some fearful anticipation. It's always the expectation of something good. And so hoping is most fundamentally this patient, disciplined, confident waiting. 
Fix your hope completely. So if that's the command, secondly, we fix our hope on what? Peter tells us, fix your hope, set your hope completely on the grace. So we're to hope in grace. That we're not going to get what we deserved. Preaching through Acts, I've been reminded how helpful it is to look at Paul's life. If you're going to, in Acts 18, if you're going to talk about Corinth or uh, Paul's life in Acts 17, if you're preaching through Thessalonians, well, you know, as we're listening to Peter here, it might be helpful to go to some of his life. A real man wrote this letter. A real man wrote 1 Peter 1.13. And Peter wrote about grace because he knew of it. Now, I know you know this story about the denials. But I think it's worth looking at Luke 22 for just a moment. So if you want to turn there, you can. If not, I'll tell you what it says. But if you want to turn to Luke 22 for a moment, because Luke has uh, a detail about Peter's denials that the other Gospels don't have. Luke 22, verse 55, you know the story. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Now, before we beat up on Peter, we typically talk about his cowardice. I think it's worth noticing his courage. I mean, who is the they who've kindled the fire in this courtyard? Well, these are the men, these are the soldiers who were arrested and were holding Jesus. I mean, how many other disciples are there? What's Peter done? He snuck in their huddle. He's exhausted. I mean, mentally, emotionally, physically. I mean, just a few moments before that, in the garden, none of them could stay awake. He's beat. And now what's he doing? He's putting his, he's putting his life at risk in this courtyard. They're around this fire. Verse 56, then the servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him. Now again, part of the reason he could sneak in is because it was dark, how dark it was. It breaks my heart. I told you I grew up in the country, uh, you know, and where I live now, the street lights, the house lights on my cove obscure the stars night after night. And it drives me insane. But out here, somewhere like out here where I grew up or 2,000 years ago at night, it's quite dark everywhere you go. And so in this courtyard, they, they lit a fire, and this servant girl uh, catches a glimpse of Peter. The text indicates that she's looking closely. She's inspecting. She's, she's staring even with this scrutiny. Verse 56 goes on. Seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him said, this man also was with him. Now, I think, can you imagine sort of the blood rushing out of Peter's face in that moment, his anonymity seemingly gone. Now, hesitation's a liar's game, so he responds quickly, verse 57, but he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. Okay, and the way Luke paints the pictures, it seems that some time passes. Maybe Peter thinks he's in the clear. Verse 58, and a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. The accusation's gotten a little more specific. It's not merely that Peter was with him, you know, walking around with him. It's that Peter belonged. He was one of them. Verse 58, but Peter said, man, I am not. That's two. Time goes on. Verse 59, and after an interval of about an hour. Now, again, I think it's worth pointing out that at least two people had accused Peter of being in cahoots with the guy in chains. 
And yet Peter, does he run? No, he, he stays right there. He doesn't get out of Dodge. He wants to see how Jesus is. Verse 59 again. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. There's no reason for a Galilean to be there here in the middle of the night. It seems that this third person keeps repeating this charge to this man and to that man and that person in the courtyard. The accusations are piling up. The crowd is turning, surely. There have been three people who've said this. They're telling each other. Now, we know Peter a little bit. It doesn't take much to fluster Peter. Does this scenario seem to be enough to fluster Peter? I think so. In Mark's gospel, we're told that at this point, what does Peter do? He begins to curse. That's what Mark's gospel says. Verse 60 in Luke's gospel, Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. That's the PG version. He's animated, using language he shouldn't use. Verse 60, and immediately while he was still speaking. So while Peter is ranting and raving, while he is still speaking, verse 60, the rooster crowed. Now, all the Gospels include Peter's three denials, but only Luke, the detail-oriented doctor historian, pins this phrase in verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now, I was thinking about this this week, and, and I think I'm okay. I think. I don't, if I don't feel anything... I, 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 I'm good. Thank you. Um, now, how did, how did Luke know this happened? Uh, I mean, Peter's, again, how many disciples are in the garden? Peter's the only one in the garden. Peter must have told Luke. They would eventually meet. Also, the only way we know, verse 61, that Jesus looks at Peter is if Peter has his eyes on Jesus. You thought about that? He must have been close enough, he's by the fire, but Jesus is close enough to still be seen, close enough that he could see his eyes even. And it seems that all this time while Peter is around and denying Christ, that Jesus is away from him or turned away from him. But while he is ranting and raving and cursing, Jesus turned and Peter saw him turn. And then Peter saw his face. And then he heard the crow. Now, Peter's a complicated character, isn't he? Moments before he's willing to die for Jesus, he'd cut a man's ear off fighting for him. Then standing by a fire, he denies him. And then, instead of running, he sticks around in the courtyard, keeping himself in danger for hours. Then two more times, he falls into temptation. Complicated character. Fervent, then fearful. And fervent, then fearful. Nothing like us. See, Peter, he knew what grace was. And he wrote about it. And he says here that this grace is personal, right? Fix your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you. It's personal. This grace is also future. It's a future verb there. It will be brought. Maybe you say it will be brought when. Fix your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So 
though Peter knows grace, though he's written about it, he knows that there's still more to come. There's still grace to come. You know, the first John Piper book that I ever received or read, my mother-in-law bought for me, very savvy, and the book was called, you know, guess what it was? Future Grace. Look at y'all. It was Future Grace. And uh, I wasn't reformed at the time, and I, but I loved his writing. I loved his writing, but not his ideas. In fact, I argued with him for a couple hundred pages. I almost brought it tonight to show you. I still have question marks in the margins for, you know, a couple hundred pages. But eventually you realize as you're reading and you see the scriptures, ah, Paul did, Peter did, the Bible does motivate others to live in the now while considering something that will happen in the future. That's what Peter's doing here. You know the, the phrase... Uh, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly, that, excuse me, don't be so heavenly minded that you're uh, no earthly good. You know, John Piper says that phrase is garbage. I agree with him. But he, Piper says, name three people who are too heavenly minded. I, I can't. See, consistently, the scriptures say, fix your hope on something that is yet to come. Future grace. There is more grace that we now await. This is exile, yes, but this exile will end. And Peter says that considering the future will affect how you live now. You go on reading in 1 Peter 1, you have to be holy as he is holy. Hoping in future grace actually fuels present holiness. Because knowing the end enables endurance. Knowing the end enables endurance. A few years ago, um, a very competent medical professional told me that I needed to run a little bit more. And you, know, you reach that point. I have some genetic issues, heart issues, and I'm not talking about sin. Or, but, but so off and on over the last few years, I've done my best to obey my doctor. Now, I also love St. Jude, and I love downtown Memphis. Y'all are my people. Um, and the doctor said I had to run. I, I used to beg my wife, can we live in those apartments right in the outfield at, uh, at uh, AutoZone Park? I mean, that's, that's my dream. But anyways, uh, the doctor said I had to run. I love downtown. I love St. Jude. So I've done those, one of the shorter races, to be clear. I don't, the shorter races. And so one year, you know, if you run the shorter races, you need to make a goal for how fast you want to run it. A certain time I wanted to finish it in. So one thing I learned over the years is that uh, if you want to have anything left at the end, you better not come out of the gates uh, um, running as hard as you can. So you find a pace that challenges you, but you save some energy for the end. Now, at this race a few years ago, I thought I had a decent pace. But if my math was right, it was still going to be tight. So I'm thinking as I'm, like a minute ago, I'm thinking about a horse flies. I'm being preaching, but um, I'm thinking, I'm doing math while I'm running. And I think it's gonna, this isn't going to work. And so, uh, so uh, I'll stay at my current pace. And then I'm going to give it everything I have on the last mile. Well, then a couple things happened. Uh, first, right as I'm beginning the last mile, I see one of my dearest friends at Southwoods, actually the doctor who told me to run, who's, no kidding, he was committed to my welfare, and he's standing there uh, in a cold Saturday morning cheering me on. Then right after that, uh, this guy I don't know runs up beside me, all right? We're at the tail end. Now listen, you've seen this guy, maybe you've met him. He doesn't sweat. Maybe he's already run five miles, but he looks like he could be doing his taxes at the same time. I I'm wondering... Is this the day my life ends and he's unfazed? And so, 
In a moment of no self-awareness, as this guy's beside me, I tell him, hey, I'm going to stay with you this last mile. <laughs> I'm thinking maybe I'll hit my goal if I stay with this guy. Now, generally, I'd say I'm self-aware, not in these moments. So I'm fine for a few minutes, but he is cruising, and I am, I am wearing down. Eventually, my pride relinquishes a bit, and I decide I'll tell him, man, just go ahead, you know. And so now, listen, I've just met him in the most awkward way possible, and we don't know each other's names. He'll never see me again. He has nothing to gain from me staying with him. But when I say to him, go on, man, I'll catch up, instead of responding how I assume he will, he says, no way. The end's right around the corner. Come on. And he was right. I mean, the, uh, we were within a minute or two of the finish line. And in that moment, my calves convulsing, my lungs screaming, <laughs> that's exactly what I needed to hear. And so against every other inclination, I continued attempting to stay with him. And it hurt for a minute or two, but then it'd be over. Looking ahead, I was able to push. But I needed reminding. See, a minute ago, when I said that this grace was personal, I don't mean it was individualistic. All the pronouns here are plural pronouns. The command is actually, Peter is saying to groups of elect exiles, you all fix your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you all. And if, I guess if he could span his hand like that, he would do that too. So that you don't think I'm just talking to you, my defender, my guy. All right? He's talking to all of them. <laughs> you all fix your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you all. You see, it's a corporate hope. It's a corporate command. And so let me ask this. If you knew the Lord commanded someone else, maybe the person on your right or left, to do something that God had spoken to them, would you be obligated? Do you think you have an obligation to remind them? This is a corporate command. That brother in that race had no obligation to me, but you do to one another. You brother, you sister, fix your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you. This is the kind of thing we have to say to one another. We have to believe it. We have to do it and encourage one another. Don't transfer your hope. It's grabbing smoke. Fix it completely on him. Grace awaits. And what about the rest of the verse? Or maybe you'd say that's all well and good, and, but vague. So how do we fix our hope? Like the rest of the verse answers that question. Third, how? I'm not going to get in the weeds here uh, with the exegesis or whatever. But again, there's only one command. Uh, Tom Schreiner calls the other two verbs in this verse, they're participles. And he says they're subordinate to the main verb, the command to hope. They're uh, what we might call instrumental verbs. They, they tell us how we might set our hope. Tom Schreiner actually translates the verse, set your hope fully on the grace by preparing your minds for action and by being sober. So what is the instrument, the means by which you set your hope? Well, first, prepare your minds for action. What does that mean? Well, the language is something of a picture it seems that back in those days, like today, 
they would have worn what is comfortable around the house. Okay, you certainly have your, your attire at the house. But then, depending on the activity, certain kinds of clothing can get in the way. So if they were about to go do some work or fight, they, they, they would gather up their loose-fitting clothes and you know, tuck them in or tie them up. Whatever aspects of their clothes might trip them up. You know, one of the funny things about the St. Jude is that it's always a bit cold when you get there in the morning. And uh, sometimes folks wear layer upon layer. But once you start running, what do you have to do? You're dodging layers. People are just, you know, I don't think it matters what brand something is or how much they paid for that fleece. There's no one to give it to, so they just throw it, you know. And you're dodging it. And uh, whatever's an impediment, whatever's a hindrance to the goal is left on the curb. Peter says, prepare your minds for action. You can, maybe you can see the picture. It's akin to saying, roll up the sleeves of your mind. So, you know, how, do you, how do you fix your hope completely? Well, you're not passive. That's part of the point. It takes effort. It takes intentionality. Trina writes, hope will not become a reality without disciplined thinking. Okay, it just won't happen. You want to just stack, you know, walk into it, stroll into it. How do you fix your hope completely? You roll up the sleeves of your mind. Now, I don't know exactly what that means for you in the particulars. But you do what it takes to facilitate the goal. Okay. So, you know, maybe if you're, you know, when I run, for example, that race, I, I, I'm so scared that I, I'm so slow and so scared of failing, that I don't even take all my keys. You know, I take the one key that I need to get in my car. That, those extra three keys, that's going to that's gonna bother me, all right? It's going to weigh me down. You're rid of that. So if you struggle with transferring your hope to passing things and distractions tend to trip you up, maybe we need to reconsider the way we discipline our minds. So what would it mean to prepare your mind for action? What is the loose clothing that occupies much of our thought life? What are their habits or patterns of life that tend to lead you toward putting hope elsewhere? Now, the low-hanging fruit is, of course, preacher, what app should you delete? But in saying that, I should remind us all that the root cause is probably something even deeper. We pursue future grace elsewhere, approval elsewhere, purpose elsewhere, transfer hope elsewhere, because we've forgotten momentarily where approval, belonging, purpose, future grace, and hope are most enduringly found. So what would it mean, I was thinking about this today, I sang, uh, anyways, what, <laughs> what would it mean to assault your senses with the reality of hope? Not in order to accrue righteousness, but in order to experience or sense or benefit from meditation upon future grace. So, so how do you fix your hope? You're active, okay? You don't assume you're going to, it's just going to happen. You roll up the sleeves of your mind. Well, how else does Peter instruct Well, you continue doing what it takes. He says, prepare your mind for action. Keep sober in spirit. This is the ongoing nature. This is the present tense. This is ongoing, self-controlled, and attentive behavior. So Schreiner says that there is a way of living that becomes dull to the reality of God, that is anesthetized by the attractions of the world. 
So I spent all week with uh, Monday to Thursday in Louisville with some of our teenagers. And, you know, I was talking to them, hearing their struggles. You know, when I was a teenager, this sort of forgetting God meant one thing. I'm trying to figure out who I am. I'm struggles with the, having struggles with the opposite sex, whatever. It, it doesn't look the exact same in my late 30s, early 40s. The kids and the mortgage and career. But with completely different factors, in both cases, I can become dull to the reality of God and lured into worldly pursuits. That's, I was listening to them talk about it in a six-hour ride yesterday, and I'm thinking, that's the same problem I'm having, with, but it looks completely different, right? The temptation hasn't changed. It never will. That's why Peter emphasizes the continual nature. Prepare your minds. Keep sober in spirit. So... My wife would love this. I mean, it's a real shame that she is not here. Oh, she would just be, I can't imagine what she would be back there, how hard she would be laughing. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> all right. Now, there are two ways that we fix our, those are the two ways we fix our hope completely. Now, maybe you've noticed I've skipped one really important word in verse 13. It's the first word, and it's far from unimportant. Peter writes, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, both the command and the how of the command follow the first 12 verses of this letter. Peter's very clear there. He's not given a single command in verses 1 to 12. And here he's making sure to connect the command of verse 13 to what precedes it with that therefore. So before he commands us to fix our hope upon it, what's he doing? He's detailing this future grace. The exiles in verse 1, they are elect exiles. In grace, they've been chosen. The Father chose them. They did nothing to merit it. They'd been born again, uh, not because of something they deserved, but verse 3, according to his great mercy. And in a world surrounded by things that perished, they've been born again to a living hope. We sang about it earlier. What a great song. They've been born again to this living hope. Now, why is this hope the same hope we're to fix on completely living? Verse 4, this has happened through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His conquering life, his death, his life is given to us. And because of that, our hope will never die. That's verse 4. Inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and our hope will never die because we're not keeping it. We're not holding on to it. We're not the ones keeping it from fading, from perishing. Verse 5, by God's power, we're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And because all that's true, he keeps us and will keep us. We can rejoice in the difficulty of the present. That's what y'all talked about last night. During our present exile, in this we rejoice, though all these other things are happening. Verse 8, though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And about this salvation, verses 10 through 12 make plain that the Spirit predicted the sufferings of Christ and his glories, his resurrection and his ascension long before it happened. This is not some out of nowhere, hundreds of years prior, the prophets prophesied, verse 10, about the grace that was to be yours. 
You alls, they prophesied about it. And then God fulfilled his purpose. The prophets spoke of things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. So why are there no commands until verse 13? Because the essence of the gospel is news. It's good news. Something has been done. Someone has come, and Peter's rehearsing it. And it's glorious news. It's the kind of news that, verse 12, the angels long to look at. Because the angels, they, they know God as creator. They know him as king. They know him as holy. But they would never experience, they had not experienced, the grace of knowing him as redeemer. Or restorer. That one day the physical things, the emotional things, the spiritual things, he will make every single one of them right. Redeemed and restored. And the angels, they marvel at this. When we were a mess, nothing lovely about us, he loved us. He knows us fully. You, you, I know y'all, you don't know me. I don't really know you. He knows us fully and loves us. So Peter writes, though you have not seen him, you love him, yes. But consider the grace here, though he has seen you, he loves you. See, it's only in the context of that glorious news outlined in verses 1 to 12 that Peter can say, therefore, so we consider that rightly, when we consider that gospel repeatedly, you can hope more completely today than you did yesterday. And then we do it again. And we do it again. We ask that the Lord help us. At that water park, as I was perpetually keeping my eyes on the two-year-old, I eventually needed to get in the water. And so I found an open chair, put my sandals in front of it, put my t-shirt upon it. Now, that's a Memphis, it was a Memphis Grizzly shirt, and I loved it. Uh, it was very comfortable. I'm cheap and nostalgic, so I've worn it to almost every Grizz game I've ever been to. And after I put my sandals and my shirt down, I continued chasing the young man around, in and out of the water, to and fro. A couple hours later, beaten, tired, I go back to that chair. My sandals were sitting right there, shirt gone. And I had no idea where it went. I looked for a while. Someone took it. Now, you know why I didn't know who took it? I wasn't watching it. There was zero tension. Shirt, son. Shirt, son. I wasn't going back and forth. I had my eyes on something of much more value to me. Fix your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, help us. That is a tall order. And we cannot do the command of verse 13 without the power of verses 1 to 12 and the person of the Spirit. And so we ask that you, by your Spirit, might enable us 
to focus. It won't be perfect, but more today than yesterday, and a little more tomorrow. And then we're going to have a bad day, but then more the next day. Father, help us to fix our hope completely on grace, future grace brought to us when your son comes back and makes all things right. We pray all these things. I pray all these things for Grace Church in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.